Welcome to episode two of Musings with Michael and Megan. Today is all about stress. Stress, struggling, the things we find stressful, how to communicate in a less stressful way, how to embrace the struggle that is life. Also, how psychedelics fit into that, how meditation fits into that, what Michael learned at officer candidate school in the Marine Corps how to ask for directions in a foreign country, and a whole lot more. So buckle your seatbelts, put on your masks, pop in your earbuds, and get ready for another episode of Musings with Michael and Megan. Uh, Well, I wanted to ask you today something that it's kind of an ongoing conversation that we have, and I always really like your perspective on it and feel like I could use your view right now. Um, And it's about facing challenges when we're faced with challenges in our lives how we approach them because one thing that i always remember about you and this happens to you all the time but one particular story that i remember was from some of your fellow marines when you were at ocs at officer candidate school saying that uh even when you were in the middle of like the worst hikes what do you call you don't call them hikes do you that sounds very recreational no we call them yeah we call them humps but that sounds gross that sounds way worse yeah we'll go with hikes (laughs) when you're on your really long hikes and everyone was kind of like getting super angry and maybe it was really hot that was in summer right and it was super uncomfortable for everyone and everyone hated it and you would be the one laughing and joking and getting everyone's morale up And probably annoying some people, but I think for a lot of them, uh, making it just an overall more pleasant, more fun experience. And I remember some of your fellow Marines saying that, and I thought that that's really true of how you are in the rest of your life as well. Like, sometimes you'll tell me the way that you want a certain situation to go. I'll know what your hope is for that situation. I'll know what you want the outcome to be. And then even if the outcome is completely different than that, so in all perspectives it's failed you know or it's gone completely wrong when I ask you about it you're like yeah yeah but but actually it's for the best now that I think about it this is actually the way that it should be this is actually better than what I had planned like you have this real way of changing your perspective on something to find the positive in it even if it's different than what you had hoped for so I don't know what my question is other than just how do you do that and why do you do that and how can I learn how to do that I don't know. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> That's just how I've always been. Yeah, always? Yeah, I think for the most part where it's just kind of like, the way that I look at it is, it, why is there any reason to be upset hmm. about anything? Probably to uh, maybe an even fallible degree on some things that, like the stuff that happened with our bank, two weeks ago or like whenever we have to get on the phone with customer service for anyone and I'll be on the phone with customer service and you're in the same room and I'm like I have too much perspective where I'm like I get it the person on the other side of the phone isn't um they didn't make these policies this isn't their decision they're just reading from a script they're just this person that's like another link in the chain so I won't get angry at them or passionate I guess is how you say um like I won't get um worked up at all 
or at least not the way that you'd like me to because I'm like in my head I'm like yeah it's it's all good like we'll figure this out anyway and me yelling at this person isn't going to make it any better so why would I work myself up when I only have so much energy in the day like why why would I work like waste my energy on this person when I know that they're not worth it when I could put that energy towards something else um okay to be clear i never want you to yell at customer service people that's not at all what it is like yeah and that's kind of a balance that is interesting for me right because sometimes i'll see you maybe like the situation with our bank was that they caused a really huge problem for us they shut our accounts down without any warning and there's a fine line i think between it's not even a fine line, actually. There's a very clear distinction between treating a customer service person with disrespect versus telling them that there's a big problem that needs to be fixed, you know? And I think that's where, in those kinds of situations, I'll get frustrated with you because I'm like, you're allowing them to not fix this because you're just so chill about it, yeah. you know? And I think there's a difference between, like, passionately expressing what needs to be expressed without letting it affect your emotional state because mm. i think you're just so calm and so chill that in those situations you'll be like yeah it's okay it's fine no problem yeah even but though I it is a really big problem yeah you know? but like, i don't even say that like the conversation that i had with the one woman was like look what i want you to understand is that there's not there's i understand that there's probably nothing you can do for us right now and I know that this policy wasn't your decision. And I understand that there's some stupid government mandate that forces you to take some type of action mm. uh, if you don't have this information about your customers. But what I'd like you to agree with me on is that this is a stupid policy. <laughs> like that's the conversation that I have with her. Like you do understand to this woman, I'm trying to tell her like, you do understand that this policy is nonsense it doesn't make any sense it's completely ridiculous for your customers and for you yeah. to just close a customer's account so uh i would like some acknowledgement there but like yeah. i didn't get any because she was just reading off of the script yeah which then i guess the the thing that you really want is to be able to calmly and respectfully ask that person to pass your feedback along to someone who can deal with it or to send you up the chain of command to someone who can yeah. actually fix the problem because i actually absolutely agree with you like there's no need to ever be rude or angry with some customer service person but if there is a problem like you do need to get it fixed as well so i think that that's a balance that goes way beyond our situation with our our banks you know it's this situation of like anytime you're in that place where something needs to get done you know yeah, something yeah. needs to happen that's where I think it's interesting, the example of you being out in the hump with the <laughs> hump. In the hump. In the hump, on the hump, when you're out, like, humping with your fellow Marines, yeah. you know? <laughs> that experience of you knew that you had to finish it. It's not like you were just like, oh, you guys are tired. Okay, let's stop. Yeah. You know, not at all. But you were somehow able to find within you a positive emotion that actually encouraged everyone to finish 
you know, to get done what needed to get done. Mm. So where does that come from? Even when you yourself are tired and wanting to fall out. Maybe not at OCS. I don't know. I remember that. uh, Yeah. Okay. I remember this Garfield comic strip that, um, like Garfield's famously that, that fat orange cat that eats lasagna, right? Yes, Michael. I think we all know who Garfield is. Okay. So, um, he is like always in a, in a pissy mood, Hmm. right? And John, his owner is like, you know, it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile. And then Garfield like threw lasagna at him or something like that was the comic strip. It doesn't matter. Right. But the, Wait, the is point that the, the only place that you ever heard the phrase. That's <laughs> my favorite. That's my favorite place. That's my. Okay, oh my so, God. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the creators of the Garfield comics. They wrote ship. that. It was Jim. Uh, I don't know. Dude. I don't remember his name. <laughs> but um, I think that point stands, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. But for me, like being pissed off about a situation that there's nothing you can do about or you can only do so much about Mm -hmm. is more energy than just doing the thing and way more energy than doing it with a smile. And here's the other thing. And maybe like this is a sickness, but maybe it's a sickness that everybody should try to harness in themselves. Yeah. I a little bit am happy when other people are losing their shit. Like (laughs) I would love to help them and and prevent them from uh, being pissed off or like, angry about a situation i would love i would love to be able to help them with it but if i can see that other people are having a personality failure or a mental breakdown <laughs> in a difficult situation i'm a little bit like i can be a little bit like oh that's over the top this isn't so bad ah just like seeing them go so far in one direction i'm like this really isn't that bad. And then once I start thinking, oh, this really isn't that bad. Like, it could be worse. They could be cutting off our fingers. Like, we could have bamboo shoots down our fingernails. Like, there's a lot worse. (laughs) I guess, I don't know. That's where my mind goes. There are a lot worse things. There are a lot worse things. So I'm just, uh, I think maybe those examples of other people, like a rainy day. Like, somebody's like, oh, so sad. It's a rainy day. You know how fun it is to be in the rain? Actually, kids fight to get outside when it's raining. That's cool and to then, actually experience and then, it. Yeah, and then when we're adults, it's like, ugh, I got to go commute in the rain. It's going to take me twice as long to drive to work. Or, yeah. ugh, I guess the mail's not going to come on time today. And it's like, does any of that stuff really matter? If you're going somewhere and you hate going there or you don't want to be there, why are you going? And if you have to go then there has to be some element of it that is enjoyable or will be enjoyable for you. Even if you're going to your mom's funeral. Hmm, jeez. Okay, enjoyable doesn't isn't characteristic of that experience, but there is a value in you being there. Yeah. So you don't even need to be upset about that. Hmm. You know, you can be sad about the situation, but that's a, a, a life-altering experience that you get to have and you can have in your complete capacity to be present in that experience not by enjoying it or smiling about it but by like fully being there versus telling everyone that it sucks so bad she was too young 
uh, it just happened out of the like all that stuff is okay, like that's a pretty extreme example but that's where my mind goes with that stuff well I think I understand what you're saying too you're actually saying like if you're fully present with actually what's happening in the moment because usually what's actually stressing us out or raising our emotions is the story that we're telling ourselves about the thing like even if you're at your mother's funeral for example if you can take away the story of your mother having just passed and all the thoughts of the grief in your head and just be present with like your other family who's there the actual happenings of that moment are not so different than like a family reunion right and in most families that is a family reunion yeah but i mean i think what i'm hearing too is like in the situation of the bank accounts right for example i was so stressed because i was thinking like how are we going to get money? How are we going to buy our next groceries if we can't use our ATM cards and this and that? And of course, the reality of the situation was like, we'll figure it out. They made a mistake. It'll be fixed. Yeah. Also, the reality of that present moment was me sitting in my family room that I love in Bali in a villa. You know what I mean? It was not a dire, I wasn't in danger of starving or anything like that. The actual no. present moment was like us hanging out in our room that's what was actually happening you know yeah versus the story that i was telling myself which was actually just worries about the future and what i'm also hearing you saying is that you are able to find your calm even better when you see other people freaking out which makes me realize that me freaking out is the reason why you're so calm all the time because <laughs> you're like the foil Maybe. to that Oh, which is very interesting. And I also feel that too. Like anytime I think that I'm going through something really difficult, hearing someone else sharing their struggles, it sounds sick, like you said, but it makes me feel better. It just makes me feel not so alone, you know? And I think that's part of why, like, Michael's in a men's group. You're in mentorship, the men's group that meets on Mondays. And I've been doing Ashley's sharing circle and meditations on Mondays. And it's the same thing. It's like, just having a group of people talking quite vulnerably about what's going on in their lives and expressing their problems and their issues, it it's commiseration more so than it is like celebrating someone else's pain. You know, it's this feeling of, oh, wow, this is actually the human experience, right? To go through mm. struggles and challenges and this and that. And then to see other people's perspectives and how they come out on the other side of it joyfully is very encouraging and even if they're they're not yet through it you know you can kind of encourage each other so i think there's there's like with social media and everything there's this sense of like bragging is totally fine now in a way that it wasn't when we were kids like you used to be able to get in trouble by your teacher in grade school for bragging and now it's all anybody ever does on social media so there's sometimes a lack of truthfulness and vulnerability in the facade that people are putting out there to the world that makes us think like everyone else is doing so much better than we are and in those kind of intimate circles like your men's group or my sharing circle it's like actually you get to hear people's real feelings and their real thoughts and it makes us feel just a little bit more human and a little bit more connected i think so I can see why that would be centering and grounding and allow you to find your calm a little more yeah. just to be aware of other people's pain and challenges. It sounds messed up, well, but I understand it completely. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that life is hard just like in general. Yeah. Like 
it's it's like as soon as you overcome one thing one hurdle one goal or graduate something or you know finish a puzzle whatever all the same thing uh once you once you get that once you accomplish that then another one is is the next moment yeah it starts the very next moment there is no like time to like to revel in in what's going on yeah yeah so you have to force that into your life like the enjoyment oh cool before it's even over there's so many people especially in like like we're friends with a lot of entrepreneurs right Mm -hmm. especially in the entrepreneurship world or anybody that works for themselves all i need to do is just finish my website or i just need to get this one thing i just need to finish this one course or i just need to finish this retreat or this thing or this thing and then after that i can chill Mm. then after that it'll all be good and i can relax that's never the case. As soon and while you're working on something, you're already listing the ten next things that you need to do, whether sure. you're doing it consciously or not. And that's just you. Everybody else that is inserting themselves into your life is also inserting those elements that they're asking for your time or your attention or your effort or your expertise on something. Like there's always gonna be something else. There's always gonna be a struggle, and we thrive like you the human animal actually thrives in struggle Mm. that's that's what all of our nervous system our musculature everything is built to overcome struggle to adapt to difficulty yeah no matter what it is so if you don't enjoy the thing that you were created for like literally you're created to struggle to 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 evolve and and to ensure that your dna makes it to the next generation then just die (laughs) 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 you know like you gotta you gotta learn how to enjoy it yeah this sucks a little bit but at least it is yeah it's hard but i know what you mean it's like that's what we're here for i remember we meditate with sam harris too on his app and uh the one theory lesson that he said was about that he was like he said he realized that he was like somehow waiting for this time when there were going to be no challenges in his life. Same like you said, once yeah. I do this, once I do that, as if there's ever going to be a time where there's absolutely zero challenge in your life at all. And, yeah, and yeah. if that does happen, you're probably doing something wrong because it means you're not achieving. It means you're not in, in my, creating. In my eyes, it also, if that does happen, you're actually taking steps backwards. Yeah, probably. I mean, which isn't to say that, like, we shouldn't also find times to rest and to enjoy. Like you said, you find the enjoyment and you let your mind rest sometimes. You know, I think that's my problem, too, is like I'm always thinking to the next thing. I'm always so even on days when I want to take a rest day, I can't switch it well, off. Well, yeah, that is an issue that you have. And, and that's because part of the adaption, part of the adaptation is the integration. And that's what, Mm. that's all that rest is. When, when you exercise, you cause literal damage to your muscles Yeah. and you don't get stronger from the exercise. You get stronger from the recovery after the exercise. When you learn something new, when, when you have a period of intense focus on a new thing that you're trying to learn, you're priming your, your neurons to, to know this thing. But it's only when you sleep or have a sleep like state Mm. that that becomes entrenched in your brain. Those connections become solidified. Literally, it's the exact same process with your brain and with your muscles. 
So if you don't have that process, then you didn't do the full cycle of things. Right. So yeah, struggle and sleep. Yeah. Because you have to. Sleep is mandatory. You have to do that. Right. You know, struggle and meditate. Struggle and integrate. Even these things that all these hippie people... Um, hippie people. You know, well, everybody's doing this shit now, like psychedelics and and, and uh, silent meditation retreats and stuff like that. Even all of that stuff, all of the professionals, like the, the people who really know what they're talking about with that stuff, preach integration. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I read a book on psychedelics... Um, a while ago and what he says is at the most you should do a serious psychedelic trip twice a year mm. and spend six months integrating what you learned from that yeah. experience which is not how most people do it but like anybody that knows anything about growing overcoming learning something new knows that that's part of it as well yeah you said struggle and sleep, struggle and integrate, but I think also struggle and then celebrate, like actually take time to celebrate. And you, you've helped me with this too. Like I recently launched my online live yoga classes on Zoom and it took me a couple of weeks to like get the platform built up on my website, get everything in place through Zoom and the integrations and this and that. And I right away, like as soon as I launched it, I had this feeling of like, okay, now a million students are going to sign up straight away. And, and I was just ready to like get rolling with it. And you, you brought me something. I think you brought me chocolate or something the night that I launched it. Yeah. And you were like, hey, you did a thing, you know, like let's celebrate here. This is for you. Like I wasn't even going to pause to be like, wow, I finished it. I was just like, now where are the students? Let's start marketing. Let's get people to join. Like I was ready to just roll into the challenge right. without ever taking time to pause and be like, wow, I just created something from nothing. Whether it goes well, whether it's difficult from here, I did something and I should celebrate that, you know, and you encouraged me to celebrate it that night. And I thought that was really awesome because otherwise I would not have even paused, you know, I wouldn't have yeah. even taken the moment to say, okay, finish, cool, take a minute to rest, take a minute to integrate before rushing right into the next mm. set of challenges. I think that's important. I think that that's the reason that weekends are important. Oh, yeah. It's hard to get... hold Monday through Friday. Yeah, right. Well, it doesn't necessarily need to be Saturday and Sunday, but yeah. I think that if you want to be able to... And it's funny because I have two kind of opposing views, but they fit in my mind okay. um, if I truly talk about them because I tell people to wake up early all the time. Mm. You know, like I'll, I wake up... Cl pretty much around 5 a.m. almost every day of the week. Yeah. Even and on Saturday. Don't get up, the cats wake you up. Well, yeah, if I don't get up, the cats wake me up. And even on Saturday and Sunday, I still do it for the most part, but I might go back to bed later. Yeah, true. That's right? true. Right? But the way that I view the weekend or like actually intentional vacations, people who mm. take a couple of days off randomly, I think you're wasting that opportunity. Like actually plan something out, do something that – is a celebration of whatever you accomplished or is relaxation so that you can recharge. Because for me personally, and I know this is how most people are, if I force myself to take Saturday off or Saturday and Sunday off, depending on the week, come Monday, I'm on fire. Yeah, like, true. I'm literally holding, it's like, it's like a, it's like a, pardon the uh, analogy, but it's like a dog getting ready for a dog fight. Like, 
they like let it smell blood and like get angry and they do terrible things to it and they're like hitting it in the cage and stuff like making it ready to go and that's how i feel over a weekend where i'm like i want to do something i want to do some work like i'm ready to do something but i need to hold it like hold on to it for for just a day or a day and a half or two days because then come monday i'll just soar through it cool whereas if I don't, and I work all the way through the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, you know, 14 days straight, 18 days straight. Yeah. By day nine or 10, everything blurs together. My work quality has gone down in- intensely. I forget why I'm doing what I'm doing. Just like all intention goes out the window. Yeah. So that's part I, That's part of the celebrate as well. Cool. Like, okay, yeah, you did something. You, you, you put up that whole platform very quickly, that online platform mm. for your classes. You put it up very quickly. And then it's like, okay, if you roll right into the next, the next part of it, getting students or, or the first class or whatever that is, you, if you roll right into that, then it's like the steam is still being let go from the original project. Like you're not giving yourself a chance to build up more pressure so that you could go after getting the students better. Gotcha. So that you could say, you know, maybe you didn't celebrate it. And then two days later, while you're trying to get students and messaging people, you're like, ah, this wasn't even a big deal anyway. I'll just let it, I'll just let it fall to the wayside. Whereas if you totally said, which you totally did. (laughs) Whereas if you take the time to celebrate it and like kind of make it a big deal, then in three days when you start to have those feelings, you'd be like, no, man, like I went out and had a bottle of wine to celebrate this thing. Like this is a real thing. Yeah, that's cool. So I'm going to put some effort towards it. Yeah. Just to be clear, analogies that you've used so far during the last 25 minutes have included bamboo shoots in the fingernails, dogs getting bloodthirsty, and your mom's funeral. So. You, you know, no, <laughs> not know your mom's funeral. I don't know where her head's Anybody's at Anybody's right mom's now. funeral. <laughs> um, well, you know, so I use apocalypse analogies a lot, too. And you always tell me that I write too much about the apocalypse. Show me a file. Um, and you, you always tell me that I, I use those too much. Apocalypse um, analogies. Yeah, you, you've at least told me that once. And the way that my mind works and the way that experience works in our in the in the human brain is that peak experiences have a greater impact on your mind. Mm. They stick easier because there is this there's um can I can I say science stuff? Yeah. Okay, so your brain releases acetylcholine, which is essentially this chemical that forces intense concentration on whatever you're doing, intense focus. Like It's like a catalyst for intense focus. When you have peak experiences, adrenaline gets gets released, and adrenaline is a precursor for, for acetylcholine to get released. Mm. So if those two things are released, you have a better chance of retaining what whatever you're focusing on whatever you're doing and then if you get a proper amount of rest and sleep afterwards it's really like that's just there forever that's why trauma is something that people have to get over like their whole like why it takes so much effort to get over something traumatic because of those things so my intention now my intense analogies are because these are things that i've internalized i think quite a bit no, 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 no. The like the the lessons embedded in those, like the the things that are actually important. Yeah. So whenever those, whenever I start thinking about those things, 
it's the most extreme consequences that are associated with it because it's entrenched so deeply into my mind. Interesting. So, you know, if I if you think about a pillow fight instead, it's like who really cares? There's no there's no serious consequences involved. But if in my mind, not that I'm constantly running from a tiger or something like that, but in my mind, it's like, hey, this is really important. This is about as important as wanting to save my life or survive a catastrophe might be. Wow. I wonder how that can be applied to learning new things, because that kind of reminds me of when we were first learning Bahasa Indonesia, and we had read about this concept for language learning, where it was like, you, when you learn a new word, you have to associate it with an image, a visual and also an emotion, yeah. like a strong emotion. It was about like how to memorize things, basically. Right. So we would make up these funny sentences or stories around just one word, just one vocabulary word, but something that would spark a strong emotion. Yep. Um, and that kind of allowed it to be locked into our brains a little bit more. And I wonder if that's kind of the same, the same theory here. Like once you have an emotional response to something and you use more than just your, your sound senses to remember the sound of it, but also the look of it and the visual associated with it and everything, if that actually just like digs it deeper into your brain. Do you know? A thousand percent. I feel like that's similar. So that book I read when we lived in Japan is called Moonwalking with Einstein. Mm. And there you go. I remember the name of that book. I don't remember the names of, and, and the author's name was like Jonah Cohen or something like that, like close to it. But I remember that even though that was seven years ago, mm because it's unique and it puts a, a unique image in my mind yeah. and kind of like a silly like I feel silly even thinking about that moonwalking with Einstein um, in my mind so it's there do you think of a Michael Jackson moonwalk or do you think of actually walking on the moon on the like moon. in a spaceship on the, on the <laughs> in a spacesuit yeah, on the moon. yeah. Gotcha. Einstein couldn't dance <laughs> you do know Maybe. <laughs> I do know um <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, for sure that's how the brain works cuz it's just it's just more parts of the brain and more uh I guess like ne neural connections to that one thing. So you can have like, you know, this is just this is me just bullshitting because I don't exactly know how the brain works, but like you could read it and that's one connection. But then you hear it, that's another one. You have an emotional reaction, that's another one. You have a weird picture that cr that's created in your mind that's another one that all of a sudden they're all the and smell is supposedly the strongest yeah uh way to recall memory right that connects as well then you have all these different roads to that house yeah where that idea lives definitely I think I'm a very like word person and a very verbal kind of learner so if someone tells me their name and I just hear it and don't try to visualize it it's in one ear out the other but if i picture how it's spelled then i can remember it forever i literally mm. have to like picture the letters in front of me to uh, remember it uh, yeah yeah at odyssey because i never really had to remember people's names in the marine corps it was super easy because we all had name tapes on all of our uniforms so yeah. i didn't have to remember anyone's name but at odyssey now i i have 5 10 15 people in a class and there's new people all the time at the gym that i coach at uh two two times a week um and i started doing that where i'm like oh how do you spell that and there's people from all over um all over the world so some of the names i don't even know i can't understand them at all yeah so i'll be like how do you spell that and then i'll try to pronounce it to the, like re say it what do you say repeat it to them yeah <laughs> um i'll try to repeat it to them 
Uh, and then they'll be like, no, and then I got to try again. And I'll say, okay, well, this is how Americans say it. And then I'll make up the new the new way to say their name. <laughs> oh, brutal. Yeah, it's pretty bad, but most of them get it. Uh, but even with people, like someone named Nick, I had a guy named Nick come in. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay, how do you spell that? And he was like, He's like, my name's Nick. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? And I'm like, was it with a K? Like, your parents didn't throw like a weird Y in there or anything? And he's like, no, it's such and such and -and so-and-so. But just by having that, even if it's a little bit awkward of an exchange, it's stuck in my mind. Right. Fair enough. Especially for a normal name like Nick, that's in in one ear, out the other. Yeah. But if I... In my head, I'm like, oh, can it be spelled N-Y-Q? And he's like, no, it's N-I-C-K, you weirdo. (laughs) And then I'm like, in my head, I see N-Y-Q, and then uh, like a huge X go through it, and then the proper way to write it on top. It's like, okay, I'll never forget that. (laughs) There's a guy, there's a famous comedian who he, uh, I think he was on the Duncan Trussell Family Hour a couple times, actually. His name's Mike. Yeah. And his name is spelled (laughs) N-Y-Q. That's kind of cool. I like it. But yeah, I mean, that's also why I don't necessarily understand how some people say that they get so good at speaking other languages, like learning Japanese just from watching a bunch of anime or something like that. Or we met so many people, especially in Japan, who said they learned English from watching like Gossip Girl or something like that. Yeah. And to me, it's like, I need to see it written down. And I remember getting really angry with you one time in Japan because we had already been living there for about two years. And we were out in town somewhere and my phone was dead and I needed to communicate something to someone or try to understand something. So I asked to borrow your phone and you did not have the Google Translate app downloaded on your phone (laughs) after living in a foreign country for two years. And I was like, have you never used Google Translate since living here? And I was so furious because to me it was like anything that I didn't quite understand, I would look up and try to like visualize it, see it right now, all of this. And you had never once done that in two years was my assumption from you not having that app. And, and, at and I that, was astonished. It wasn't even just Japan at that point. Like at that point, I had been to okay, Japan, different language, different alphabet. Thailand, different language, different alphabet. Korea, different language, different alphabet. Uh, we might have been to Taiwan by then, different language, different alphabet. Yeah. So like, I just don't care. <laughs> but I, I think for you, yeah, it was that you just didn't care. But for some people, they're actually more like auditory learners and they really can pick up a language just from hearing it and trying it out. But to me, like, because that's why so many people can speak a language and understand a language but can't write in that language. But to me, impossible. I write first and Mm -hmm. then I can speak and communicate. Like, I'm just very much a word person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I have to see it written to be able to pronounce it or even attempt it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, how funny. I was so mad. But here's <laughs> how the, do you not have this app? But here's the other thing. Okay, so so um, there's this awesome masterclass that I did on the masterclass app that, that uh, we had the subscription for for a while with this FBI negotiator. I oh, forget cool. his name, and it's like how to negotiate is, is the course. Sure. And what do you, I'm going to get the numbers wrong now, but uh, all conversation is... 55-33-7 or something like that. I don't know if that adds up to 100. No. But it's something like that. Those <laughs> those three proportions. So it's like 55%. Now I'm going to get this wrong as well. 55% body language, 33%, whatever, whatever it is, uh, 33% um, the way you say it. 
and 7% the words you say. Okay. Is how people actually interpret communication. That's way more than 100%, but keep going. No, it's not. <laughs> 55 plus 33 is 88. Oh, so it's less. So then you've only got 12 left. Yeah, okay. So anyway, but you get it. It's like more than half, slightly more than a, <laughs> slightly more than a third, yeah. and then like less than 10% are the three the three different uh, parts of communication so the last smallest percentage is actually what you say the first two portions that are the overwhelming majority of the way we communicate are body language and the way you say it gotcha so when we first moved to japan within a month of us being there i got sent to thailand for a month Hmm. So by the time I was done in Thailand, I had spent more time there than I had even in Japan. Mm. Okay? That was my first time being in a foreign speaking country. Yeah. And I was in two, like within the first two months. Yeah. I knew no Thai languages. Yeah. I, I knew no Thai words, like no way to speak at all. I had a lot of conversations with people. Japanese people are a little bit more socially awkward, so it's more difficult. Just more reserved, maybe. Sure, yeah. socially <laughs> awkward. Um, but Thai, the Thai people, I would go there and we'd be at like a night market and I wanted food. and It would be kind of like gesture and then they would be like this and I'd be like... and they And then they would you know, point at a picture that shows me what it is or something. And then I'd be like, ah, no, no crickets. No, thanks. What is that? You know, whatever. And have like a six minute back and forth with somebody to decide what I want to eat or negotiating a price with somebody like using fingers and stuff like that, but also facial expression and stuff like that. No problem. Right. Didn't need to know a word of the language. And I used to do that. You would leave Japan. You went on a couple of trips or back to the States and I would go to like the grocery store out in town or 7-Eleven or like or out with people somewhere that there really aren't any uh, Americans because we were close to the base. And one time you said to me, how can you do that? That's so, so, it makes me so anxious to be out there and not be able to communicate. And I, I don't know, I just, it was just fine. I would just like walk and be very clear about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And if I had problems, very clearly show that I didn't understand what was going on and somebody would come over and help me. They call that the gaijin smash. No, not the way I did it. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, it was. it's always very important for me to learn the language. I was in university courses to learn Japanese, and I think it took so much of my mental energy to try to communicate that occasionally I would get very burnt out if I was going days without having spoken English, you know, especially when you were away. And then something came up like, there's one time you and I were in the grocery store and they asked if we wanted to open up a discount card or a membership card at the grocery store. And I was so exhausted from speaking Japanese all day. And you were like, yeah, let's get the discount card. And I was like, Michael, this is now going to be me having to communicate the entire time and like using all this mental energy. I just wanted to cry. I was like, no, I don't want to fill out forms and do this membership guide and like talk like, no, it's so exhausting. But then that was because the gears in my brain were working so much. Like there would be times when you and I would be talking to someone, me speaking Japanese and you not able to speak Japanese. And I would be trying to analyze so closely every word. What did they say? What grammar thing was that? Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, oh, I'm not sure what he said. And you would be like, oh, he said, turn left up ahead. And I'm like, how did you understand that? And you're like, 
Because he pointed to the left. (laughs) (laughs) But I was so caught up in the words that I wasn't reading the body language at all, you know? Because I just still wanted to, like, get it exactly right. Mm -hmm. Whereas you're like, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's probably more than 50% of communication is just body language and everything else. And I think maybe also that comes back to the struggle thing as well. Yeah. Where even if I was stressed out in one of those situations, I would kind of be like, Ah, it's okay. I'll figure this out. Worst comes to worst, I sleep on the sidewalk. Done yeah. that before. No big deal. Oh my <laughs> like, God, yeah. You know? But here, it's Japan, so somebody will give me their bed <laughs> if I really can't find my way home. But also, I have Google to show me how to get everywhere. So Google Maps, that. but not Google Translate. Yeah. Google Maps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's just a... Maybe it is, like, just you putting less pressure on yourself and me putting so much pressure on myself in those kind of situations versus just kind of being present instead and just taking it in, you know, rather than, like, I have to be able to perfectly speak this language to get through all situations. But I think we found a bit of a balance there because, also, it is rude to live in a foreign country for a long time without speaking the language, which is why... Yeah, for sure, for sure. But at the same time... You can still be very respectful. Like you said, the gaijin smash, like that's like a joke between service members who live in... All expats. Yeah, yeah. okay, all expats who live in Japan because it's just basically like Japanese people are kind of small and they're very nice. So if you just kind of walk behind the bar and serve yourself, they're not going to stop you type of thing. Or like, yeah, if you just go through a situation that you know you're doing the wrong thing but you're just like oh what well, i don't understand yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry don't speak japanese yeah, and just like right. do what you're gonna do anyway even though you know it's wrong right so i would never i was never like that no but but i i often didn't speak the language i did well i didn't speak the language but there's still a respectful way to show people that i'm kind of lost and would really appreciate support definitely and that's a great country to get some support Yeah, we always say that was like the best place to live abroad for the first time because even though it's a huge culture shock, so, so, so different from American culture. It's weird. It was different in a way that was very safe and very... That's the weird part. Polite is the word I would use, yeah. Yeah, that's the weird part because it's so uh, technologically forward Mm. where they have everything and more than than you can think about in the States. So it's not like it's culture shock because it's a third world country or something like that. No, it's just the way they approach everything is just a 180 from how we approach things in the States. Yeah. But this, but it's the same thing. Yeah. So that's the weird culture shock aspect. But at the same time, it also makes it super safe because there's still an identifiable thing that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And, you know, five-year-olds take the train in tokyo to school yeah so it's not dangerous yeah i think you know that's why i committed so much to learning the language too because i was just always hyper aware that my very presence you know i think japan is 98 percent homogenous japanese Mm -hmm. ethnically japanese so your very presence as a foreigner sometimes made people uncomfortable and having to ask other people's help for everything makes me uncomfortable which is something that i should really probably work on because they were always very generous with wanting to give help and everything but you don't want your very presence to be a burden to people and that's why like i really commit to learning local languages when we live somewhere but 
even speaking Japanese, there were still situations where I knew that my presence was a burden on people. Like, and I think because the, the personality, the cultural kind of personality is so different than a standard American personality, like there would be times when I would walk into a little mom and pop shop, an antique store or something like that, where it's just an old woman behind the counter and just me walking in, she would like panic and run out the back door like presumably to go try to find someone who speaks English, assuming that I didn't speak English and just very Japanese. uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, yeah, Japanese. Presumably going to find someone who speaks English, assuming I didn't speak Japanese just because she would rather not have to deal. Yeah. You know, and that to me was very confronting and very uncomfortable to be like, wow, just me walking into a shop here can make someone panic. You know, it doesn't feel great. Whereas now we live in Bali in Indonesia and I feel like it's the opposite reaction. Like they're so warm and curious is really what it is, you know. So even if you're in the middle of nowhere where they don't speak any English at all, they're like super like we're messing around that one shop the clothing shop up in Bedigul the people are just so happy to like laugh with us like yeah. they didn't speak any English at all you know we speak a pretty fair amount of Indonesian but it's more like a fun curious taking selfies together like yeah but I'd like to point something out what that's your perception true for the most part you're right about Bali mm. I think that's my perception as well but in Japan that was always your perception and your added uh, burden on yourself about how you think you're burdening this person. True. Like, some of those people were just high strung. And it wouldn't have mattered if you came in or another Japanese person came in or whoever came in. That's really? just that's just the way they act. So I kind of, that's why it was so much less stressful, I think, for me, because I was never doing anything crazy. I guess if I was doing something crazy, that would be one thing, but I would walk in a restaurant and order food. You know, I'd go to the grocery store and get groceries. Well, so would I, of right. course. But... So I would always know, like, even if somebody acted weird towards me, they should have the, they should be closed if they don't want to give somebody food or or let me shop for groceries. So that was just kind of my mentality. Like they kind of know what I'm going to do if they're going to react crazy. I, w I worked in a grocery store in high school and there were a couple of my coworkers who like you could come in, ask them for cream chicken soup and they would like need to go hit their inhaler in the back. It was the most stressful experience in the world for them. Oh, and that wow. was, that was just the way they were. Yeah. Shouldn't be in customer service. Then, yeah, though. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. It definitely is my perception of things. And it probably has a lot to do with the fact that, like, Japanese language is way harder than Indonesian. <coughs> so much faster. <coughs> Sorry. Okay there? Yeah. Much faster I felt like I could communicate more deeply with people here. Even after taking college courses in Japanese, like, in Indonesian, you really can just pick it up. Because the grammar structure is much more simple and everything. So right. it, it is, I think, for me, it's e it's social anxiety is what it comes down to, you know? The more okay. easily I can communicate with someone, the less social anxiety I'll feel. Mm. The more someone seems stressed out by my presence and I'm really struggling to understand and communicate, yep. the more anxious I feel. I get it. You know what gives me social anxiety? What? Is um, people who have no reaction. <laughs> so... Like, uh, if I go into a situation or I'm trying to talk to somebody or find some common ground because we're in a social situation and I just 
looks like I have to have small talk. Fine. Let's try to at least make this interesting. And I get nothing back from somebody. I'm like, does it does not compute. Like, I want to have a short circuit. I'm like, just be a, because what's going on in their head is their, their way of dealing with the anxiety that they're probably experiencing is just to shut down. Yeah. Right. And just like be as, like as stolid as possible so that they could at least not feel uh, embarrassed about the way they responded to a question or something like that later. Right. It's probably what's going on. But in my head, I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Why won't this person smile? Yeah. Why aren't they giving more than three word answers back? Why are they looking around the room while talking to me? And I'm like, I'm not that boring. Am I? Am I I'm just trying to be, I'm just trying to have a good, co- we're stuck here. We might as well have this conversation. Why don't you want to have this conversation with me? That freaks me out. I would rather have somebody who is noticeably sweating and freaking out and like asking other people for support and help to get through the conversation because then at least they're wearing their emotions on their sleeve and I could be like, it's okay. You don't have to tell me what your favorite color is. Yeah. The weather is... They would freak out. The weather is nice. That reminds me of the last teacher training that I taught at the last yoga trotter training. I built in a silent meditation day, just one day, 24 hours, you know, because we get so much out of silent meditation retreats and things. But the difference between teaching to people who are actively engaged in the lectures and like it's more of a conversation and a back and forth between trying to teach because I kept the lessons, just like philosophy lessons going during the day and we did a lot of meditation and stuff, but to try to talk to people who can't talk back to you was so hard. Like what would normally be an hour and a half long lesson would be like 15 minutes without the back and forth and the questions and everything. It was the hardest thing in the world. So you're right, like every conversation, every interaction needs to have a back and forth and someone actively engaged. It's it's the same with teaching online with Zoom. Like as soon as they turn their microphones off, it's like, huh, okay, I'm alone now, I guess. You know, it's how it feels. Yeah. And so then, difficult. And then I don't know about other people, but I, I'll have the dialogue with myself then. Ah, uh, yeah. There, there are a lot of Marines, um, especially when I went through OCS, there was, there was a handful of, uh, it's like the boot camp style thing. You can think about it like that. Um, there are a lot of uh, drill sergeants who uh, they would have conversations with themselves because they only asked rhetorical questions. <laughs> so they'd be like, is it a good idea to get out of your rack before zero four? No, it's not a good idea. Do you need to be here at this time? Yes, you need to be here at this time. And we'd all be like, yo, this person is straight up schizophrenic and they gave him a weapon. <laughs> oh my God. Was it because you weren't allowed to respond? or It, you it just was just, didn't? it was, they all, you can think of that job as like theater. So they all develop different personalities. And one of the more, one of the like archetypal personalities was the guy who asks rhetorical questions, then gets irritated that you don't respond, responds himself in a sarcastic way with the most obvious answer. And then walks out of the room angry. It was like, like clockwork every time the same people would do that and then leave. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's one way to get your point across, but I we, guess. But point being, I think that to a certain degree, many people do that uh, if, if they're not getting a reaction from somebody else. Mm-hmm. And often what it is, is it's like the worst case scenario that you're playing out in your mind. Yeah. Oh, he didn't respond because whatever. Yeah. That's hilarious. 
it's like not leaving a long enough pause or something for someone to even respond if they wanted to, you know, because some people are also just slower thinkers in conversation. Yeah, and that's something that you say all the time is difficult for you. Like if somebody has a different conversational cadence, yes, that it's hard for you to feel like you can connect with them. About, oh, I can never be friends with that person. Yeah. <laughs> it takes them way too long to respond yeah, to something like we can't have a flow of conversation and ideas. Because even though we've been away from the Northeast for a decade now, um, we still very much are, if we get going, I'm sure certain points in this conversation are like that. Like, if we get going, it's like, good luck. You you're find not, this. You know, I listen to this on two times speed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true hey you mentioned psychedelics earlier did you know did you hear that uh anderson cooper is doing a 60 minutes on psychedelic therapy i think it was like maybe it just was tonight like probably happening now yeah in the east in the east coast yeah Yeah. i think so i'm curious to watch it yeah it'll probably be good but it's like we always say if you know anything about anything mainstream coverage of that topic is so cursory yeah that it's not worth getting angry over but it's just kind of like oh man they didn't even crack this the surface of that nutshell yeah right yeah i mean as far as the therapeutic aspects of it but also like you said it's this whole i mean i'm sure the therapy aspects of it aren't gonna have you feeling like you're tripping balls or anything right or are they it is some of the dosages of mdma that they're giving people mdma and psilocybin they're using mdma for smoking cessation and psilocybin for your trauma i might have those reversed but i think i have those reversed Hmm. but some of the dose like when they first started experimenting with it there were basically three different control three different dosages and then the control and all the studies i read all of the studies so it's like i know know. (laughs) well there's not that many but um yeah no some of the dosages are like pretty pretty psychedelic put it that way wow um, well my mom had ketamine therapy to break an NSAID addiction addiction right what was it not a, a yeah. Tylenol addiction yeah, essentially NSAIDs, like yeah. she was having like headaches and then would take Tylenol and it would bring it down but then to the point that she got addicted to Tylenol having to take it every day for years and it was ketamine therapy in the hospital that ended up breaking that addiction for her and she said it was a little bit psychedelic but I don't think she was, like, seeing light beings or anything like that, you know? It was more no. just... Well, it's not traditionally a psychedelic. Ketamine's not? Uh, no, it's a, it's a tranquilizer. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. So it has... It's like those these people that do cambo uh, up in Ubud. It's like, that's not... I think that there's some trace DMT in there, but yeah. I, I would need to look at the chemical structure. But, like, from, from my understanding is that it's mostly just poison. And you, and you just like you just puke and have fever dreams and people take that as uh, trips. But it's the, the same as like if you trip while you have massive food poisoning and you're like, it's exactly the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's exactly the same thing. So it's probably more this, like dehydration. Yeah, there's this very broad term. And, you know, that's definitely a conversation for another time because there is a value and a psychedelic nature or hallucinogenic nature to a lot of things that aren't traditionally entheogens like the the substances that that cause like you to feel like 
there's a greater meaning and everything's connected like psilocybin or dmt yeah. or, or ayahuasca or ayahuasca or like you know all of those uh, lsd um because that feeling that you just described the interconnection the greater purpose greater meaning to everything is probably why these psychedelics work for therapy for depression and suicidality and things like that right is because it gives you a sense of a greater meaning in life the, the best explanation that I've heard is yes, you're, you're absolutely right. You talk about the default mode network quite a bit. I hear you bring it up in conversations is that it turns off the default mode network. Right. Or the it default mode network bypass, being like the rut that your mind gets into. Your default mode. Your default mode, the yeah. repetitive thought patterns, the place that you go to. Like everyone always says when they're laying in bed at night, they end up going back to these like one embarrassing moment from their teenage years or something they keep replaying in your mind that's because like you said those traumatic experiences are what gets stuck in our head and if that was traumatic and humiliating enough to get stuck as your default mode network it's where your mind goes to when you're trying to rest and that's why so many people say that like oh that embarrassing thing I'm thinking of again you know so something like psychedelics switches up your default mode network. It maybe just turns it off. Turns it off. Or it gives you a bypass to it. Or, gives you a bypass. Yeah, so you can start is building a, new pathways. Exactly. So that you can kind of like get around the front door, go in the back door, move all the furniture around, and then the next time you're you're in a normal place, you go on the front door that usually causes anxiety, and you realize that the couch is on the other side of the room, and that's pretty good too. Huh. And then you can, you know do whatever that's a much more pleasant analogy than dog fighting <laughs> bamboo shoots i've never been to a dog fight but i've seen it in the movies good don't go you've been to chicken fights though they do them in the temples here they gamble with chickens <laughs> i can neither confirm nor deny uh, um yeah. all right i'm done i would say my biggest takeaways from what you said especially as far as um as far as how to approach challenges in life would be to welcome the challenges because you know that they're making you better or they're just the next natural step understanding that we're never going to be without challenges yeah and also this aspect of like sharing vulnerability sharing with others so that we can see that we're not alone in these challenges that it is actually just a fact of life and that you can almost then approach them with a bit of celebration too especially when you overcome them yeah. especially taking time to rest and integrate because yes. here's the reality if you don't choose to do something difficult mm. you're either going to get yourself addicted to heroin <laughs> or seek out toxic relationships wow or something likewise like that's just the way that we work and would you rather do it consciously and start a business and choose beneficial challenges yeah, win an out. olympic medal yeah, yeah that kind of stuff or would you rather unconsciously choose and end up wondering how you got here yeah wow cool all right well thank you have a good day